Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Salvo's shares in Porsche, it is time for another flat chat. A special welcome this week to the many thousands of you uh, who uh, have had this as a bonus in the Autosport podcast channel. Welcome. If you enjoy what you are about to listen to over the next 60 or so minutes, then uh, search for us on Flat Chat with Codders and like and subscribe. Smash that like button, as various idiots on YouTube say. And as the latest issue of GP Racing magazine arrives on the newsstands, we look at why the Porsche Red Bull marriage is off before it was even on. Uh, a new story months in the making. Meanwhile, on the cover, we have Lewis Hamilton, written off by some pundits as a spent force who ought to retire. He says he's going to prove them all wrong. And Mercedes is counting on him to do just that. Joining me to ponder non-existent mergers and retirements are live from Gateshead, it's Autosports' Matt Q. Hello, Codders. Hopefully at this stage of my career, I'm nowhere near retirement. And as far as I'm aware, no, uh, no mergers on the horizon. So just just simple, unadulterated Mac Q for you. Very good. Well, hopefully you're about to merge with a BMW 2002 <laughs> in, in, in a week or so's time. Tittering at the other end of a line is Mark Gallagher. Welcome, Mark. Thank you very much. Good to be here. I'm not going to mention retirement. This is getting dangerously close. 
Uh, for, oh, but some people never retire, though, yeah, do well, they? Yeah, I'm, well, I'm, I'm hoping not to completely retire, but once you hit the big 6-0, it starts to beckon. We, in our office, we have the joy of the ageless and boundlessly enthusiastic Tony Tobias, who oh, does yeah, Tony, uh, yeah. various sales related to the Autosport International show. And um, I, I, I'm not actually quite sure how old Tony is, but he's he's not nowhere near contemplating retirement. And he's so enthusiastic constantly we just had the funeral of someone who kept going well into her 90s and uh, worked right up until two days before you know mortality called indeed i do had uh, you came up with I, I suppose some people might say a massively obvious stat but one i actually hadn't considered on on the the twitter the other day which was that only one formula one world champion kind of completed their entire record yeah. Before she was the reigning monarch, which yeah. j- just that, that sort of underlines that amazingly long run. Yeah, the, that tweet took me about three days to compile because every pre every previous version of it begged the question. I, someone was going to go, but Fangio, Fangio, seventy, you know, fifty one, and so I had to come up with their entire world championship record completed under. Queen Elizabeth. So, uh, yeah, so Nina Farina, and that was it. But it actually, you know, it, it kind of makes you think, you know, that uh, it was a kind of good perspective. I wonder, was she an autosport subscriber for the entire time? I'm not, I'm not sure that Buck House was on the free list. Are you sure? Uh, and actually, uh, no. Well, I mean, they went to the first Grand Prix, didn't they? I mean, she didn't go to the first. It was her sister, her sister and her go. parents. But uh, yeah. Yeah, there's, it, it's a sort of a popular misconception that's grown up because of a misreading of, of the caption of, of the images because yeah. it says King George the... Uh, let me get my Georges right. King George the Sixth. Yeah. King George the Sixth and Queen Elizabeth appear at the inaugural... World Championship Grand Prix at Silverstone in 1950. Of course, that Queen Elizabeth, more latterly known to us as the Queen Mother, yeah. who left us uh, 20 years ago. Queen Elizabeth II, as she was not yet then, was um, pregnant uh, and, and definitely not going to be attending motor racing events with with loud God, cars. I didn't realise you. I didn't realise you were the Motorsport Network's royal correspondent as well as everything. The Nicholas Witchell. Just call me Nicholas Witchell. <laughs> <laughs> I promise never to call you Nicholas Witchell Connors. <laughs> Let's revert back, in the words of a former colleague, to the actual subject. Uh, <laughs> uh, let, let's try and unpack the, the Porsche madness, which, which happened just before this issue of GP Racing went to the printers. Fortunately not, as we were hitting Apple P, uh, unlike last month's Seismic News. What a strange thing this was. This was supposed to be not just an engine supply deal, but a partial acquisition of Red Bull Racing. And the due diligence had been done, all the legal boxes ticked, and it was just a question of when the 2026 engine regs were finalised, that they would then, then tadar it, as um, various irritating PR types say, using a sort of a not just a noun as a verb, but a ridiculous noise as a verb. Um, unfortunately, those engine regs were delayed and second thoughts set in. So, uh, Mark, you've, you've been in the engine trade. You've had dealings with corporates. Uh, surely it's it's never a good idea to give people too long to mull the consequences of a deal. Uh, you know, buyer's stroke, seller's remorse can set in and scupper it. It's, it's interesting when you look at the, the fact that it was all looking to, like it was moving in the right direction and then all of a sudden there was that gap and then it kind of fell apart. But actually, it, it kind of feels that maybe both parties have had a near miss there, which they may well come to appreciate because 
quite often there's a haste to getting deals done and then you sign up to everything and then you find out afterwards that it wasn't quite the way that you wanted it to be. And um, I was kind of really thinking about the fact that, you know, when BMW and Williams did their deal um, and that looked on paper like it was going to be just, just, you know, just going to be a great partnership and it, it, it began to fall apart and it began to fall apart because of power play between Munich and, and Grove. Um, and in the end, BMW just, they were often and uh, over to Cyber to, to do their deal over there. And I think the the prospect of Porsche and Red Bull going the same way, where you, know, you could two heavyweights come in together and it's unable to find a structure that works for both of them. Porsche putting their brand into Formula One, it's such a massive statement. They don't really want to be playing second fiddle to to Red Bull and then equally Red Bull don't well they don't need Porsche I mean this is the this is the thing which really became evident I suppose was that it's a nice if it's a deal that can be done it would be great and obviously there's lots of benefits to that but Red Bull don't need the money I mean that's the thing the Red Bull racing don't need the money I'm sure they have welcomed it you know it's uh, more, more more profitability and uh, of course great potential there in terms of the, the two, dare I mention the brand, were the two brands working together, Red Bull and Porsche. You could imagine they could start doing a whole bunch of things together. What, There'd be synergies. There's a lot of synergy. A huge amount of synergy. Yeah. Are, do, are we going to see how many times you can get the word synergy into the podcast? Helmut Marko and Christian Horner could not be more relaxed about the fact that this deal has not moved forward. Um, they're completely relaxed about it. There is no sense that Red Bull were in the last chance saloon trying to do a deal with Porsche because, you know, what, Helmets 79, Dietrich Mateschitz 78. I mean, it, it was some people thought, oh, well, this will be like the, the stepping stone, Red Bull into Porsche, Porsche will buy the team or buy half the team and and then take it over. And actually, the opposite is, has proven to be the case. Red Bull are in no rush to go anywhere. They've got their powertrain division. They have a high degree of confidence over that. Uh, Helmut Marko seems to think that they have at least one manufacturer, and I don't think it'll take a rocket scientist to work out who that is. So there's at least one manufacturer interested in in working with them in, from 2026 onwards anyway. Had they signed the deal two months ago or whenever it was that the original press release was written, I think that, that might have well stored up a major problem for the future. So they've gone their separate ways. And the really interesting thing is that it's now begging the question: What do Porsche do? You know, do their, does their entry in Formula One now diminish to the point where they they don't come into the sport? And it's extraordinary to think that Red Bull has such power and confidence in itself that it can turn down this giant German, you know, performance car manufacturer, one that has, you know, it's got an IPO, it's got a float on the, on the stock exchange, you know, many tens of billions, 70, 70 odd billion uh, of value for, for the company. But Red Bull don't need to hand over control to that. And I think, you know, this is where the that detail that perhaps they then got to think about through July and into August became so important. Um, some people are seeing it as a power play by Christian Horner. I certainly don't see it that way. I think, you know, you know, Christian. There's a very flat structure at Red Bull. There's Christian. There's Dietrich. There's um, Helmut Marco. They're all pretty closely aligned. Um, I had the opportunity to chat to Helmut and Christian and Monza. Um, I mean, they're they're still thick as thieves, and they they want to make sure that they have a plan that they feel entirely comfortable with. And I think Christian's point that 
you know, we're in a good place at Red Bull Racing at the moment and we don't need to destabilize what we've got in terms of a structure. I think that, I mean, I think that is a sincere point that he has. Uh, one final thing I'll say about the, um, the Williams BMW thing, which has always made me chuckle, was that um, at one point in, in the Williams BMW relationship, there was a whole discussion about the strength of British engineering versus, you know, uh, BMW's engineering in Munich and the way that those two work together. And uh, <clears throat> Frank Williams arranged for a friend of his, Rob Lamplew, to fly over the factory in his Spitfire. <laughs> um, and and do a vict- do a victory roll, which prompted the uh, BMW executives to say, "So wow, what was that?" And uh, Frank said, "That's British engineering," um, uh, which was a rather pointed way of of um, well making his point really. So yeah, so it, you know, just you could imagine, particularly with the strength of personalities that you know, with Christian, uh, with Helmut, with Dietrich. You get to 2027 or 2028 and there's discussions about drivers and structure and what's going on and Porsche trying to call the shots. And it would just, it could go south really, really quickly. So I see it as a sign of great strength for Red Bull and Porsche now have some big decisions to make. And quite honestly, if they had made a decision to come into Formula One and now don't come into Formula One, someone hasn't done their homework very well. I remember years and years ago on the topic of owners stroke sponsors trying to call the shots the 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 schism between sauber and red bull came about because peter sauber wanted to have kimi raikkonen dietrich mateschitz said um no you're not you're going to have enrique bernaldi and now Peter Sauber must be very pleased that he won that particular argument, even though it came at the cost of losing Red Bull sponsorship. I have to tell you that Dr. Helmut Marker told me that story and he said it was it was him who fell out with Peter Sauber. He said, I was the one who wanted Enrico Bernaldi to drive for the team. And he said, and Peter wanted Kimi. And we fell out and we parted company and, and that was it. I didn't really understand the punchline to him telling me that story because I said, so basically you took a massively wrong turn. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, but he seemed to think it was a good it was a good example of his um, his prowess in negotiating and the fact that ultimately he'll do what he wants to do with with including taking the Red Bull money away from Saber in those days. So Hel- Helmet's nothing if not confident about his own position, even if his own position is wrong. <laughs> oh, indeed, he's very forthright. Now, Matt, you wrote you are now the custodian of our back page column and you have opinions on car manufacturers in formula one this month's column basically i think the upshot is i hope this isn't going to invoke any spoilers but car manufacturers looking to get involved in formula one need to face a fundamental truth and that fundamental truth is that they cannot all win can they so could that be something that was playing across porsche's mind in this specific case probably less so i think with porsche you expect to come in and, and win i think where, where it's broken down is uh, i know this is obviously gp racing magazine but if you allow me a little sports car aside for a moment just to put things in context is that the the uh, let, let me just uh, get my um, hourglass on and you have uh, no more than 90 seconds to talk about <laughs> Right, done. But it comes back to, I think, 
<laughs> I think of the of the last era sports cars, LMP1 racing, the Porsche 919 was the standard bearer. Came in, won won Le Mans uh, three times, I believe, and and the and the World Endurance Championship to go with that. That nearly didn't come about at all because Porsche was so hands-on at it. It took the bosses of that race engineering program go, no, let us be kept to one side as like a after-hour skunk works program and you write us the checks and we will win Le Mans for you with your badges, your name, and, and that's it, done. We are Porsche, but you you cannot be interventionist. I think that's, that's where this deal has fallen apart is because... You know, this wasn't going to be a Tag Heuer Porsche engine this time around or, 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 you know, how, how Red Bull have run in the past with Aston Martin logos on the wing. Porsche wanted to instill people, uh, as well as write checks. And then that means you take Red Bull, which is, as, as Mark said, it's winning now. It's, it's the best Formula One team at present. So it's risk destabilizing that. And not only do you risk losing that, you also risk then as a sort of more independent body, although that's a massive employer, it's still lithe and fleet of foot. If you then have to go through chain of command at Porsche, you lose that and you can be less responsive, which is what Porsche, uh, Red Bull has been, sorry, all the way throughout its career. So I think you have, you have, you know, that that case study of where why Porsche was successful with the 919 and why you would have thought, you know, uh, the CEO who's been there over that time span would sort of have brought that lesson to the way they're going to approach Formula One. Apparently not. It's interesting, actually, that the same person I've spoken to uh, watched the Audi press conference at Spa and were a little bit worried by that because you said, when you come in, okay, Audi wants to have a high profile announcement, but when you've got a chief technical officer and the CEO, they're two high profile people in suits who are already sort of fronting this organization, this entry. He said, that's a bit worry. It's already corporate. And the fact that it's, it's, uh, it's like the pre-existing chief technical officer running the F1 show run XF1 head. They said those, those would raise a, a couple of alarm bells, but to bring it back to my column. Yeah. I, th- I think, you know, it, uh, having covered Formula E in a previous life during, uh, I came in when it was good and left when it was bad and I'm not taking full responsibility for <laughs> all the German manufacturers <laughs> leaving, but they left because the technology wasn't relevant that, you know, you don't develop batteries and that's what everyone is concerned about when an electric motor is already 98% efficient or whatever it is. Formula One's not in that place right now. We're actually, you know, a really interesting place where despite the push towards electrification, it's hybrid elements are, are seen as a future or certainly that the commercial aspects of drive to survive and the boon and big audience is enough to offset that. So whether that, you know, you have another manufacturer coming in and Porsche or Audi and they win and then that knocks the the example I cite in my column is Alpine, whether that knocks them lower down. And yes, you know, manufacturers come and go and motorsport, that line's always been trotted out. And there doesn't necessarily have to be a fault with the championship for those manufacturers to come and go like there is in Formula E. Could just be the recession or or people get bored of, of not winning. But perhaps actually, you know, the current success of Formula One is enough to have everyone stay in that Alpine can t- or the Renault group can continues to fund Alpine, even though the, the name doesn't really carry much weight. I don't think Alpine, um, but you use F1 as a, as a platform to sort of promote your brand. Perhaps now it's so commercially successful that it doesn't matter if you're not winning, but I would look at it. What's, you know, uh, say they say in general, like sort of, you know, two's company, three's a crowd. F1, it's a bit bigger than that in terms of manufacturers. But if, if Honda's coming back in, so someone's got to lose. And when you're writing, even in the age of cost caps, you know, checks for 250 million minus Fernando Alonso's salary or whatever, that's a lot of money to be losing to come, you know, 14th and 15th, which is what having more manufacturers that entails. It shuffles everyone down. So it's a roundabout way of saying Formula One's in a very good place at the minute. If two manufacturers go, it's still in a very good place. And then beyond that, I think 
if, if it was three, four, then you'd have to say something's fundamentally wrong. But I don't think we're at that place yet. Do you know, I might have to join you in the sports car anecdote memory go round because you've prompted a memory, Matt, a long, dim and distant memory of past. I'm going to say it's 1998 when I was but a stripling. The winter of 1998, I, I was invited along with a bunch of other automotive e-sportive journalists to Berlin to where Audi were demonstrating their then new sports car with a, a run around the velodrome in, um, in, in Berlin. And they showed this car, which looked great from some angles, but it is clearly, and, and it emerged later, it hadn't actually been designed by a race car designer. It had been styled by people who designed road cars and it had been styled to look a little bit like a hotted up Audi TT. And they ended up very, very late in the day realising that they'd bitten off substantially more than they could chew uh, by committing to this Le Mans programme. They also had a, a car with a roof in, in sort of semi-parallel development. So they, they called in Tony Southgate, venerable designer, to sort of A, silk persificate the open top car, which was a basket case, and B, as a backup clan, uh, in, in, in the, 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 the very few hours of the day and night left available to him when he wasn't busy silk persificating the open top car he would oversee the design of a of a of a closed top car to be built somewhere in in the wilds of norfolk and neither of those programs came to much they ended up having to do a clean sheet design for 2000 and and junk the whole thing and start again all of which kind of you know everything you're saying and Neil telling that story and and also Matt your point it all kind of filters our thoughts through to the fact that car manufacturers aren't very good at doing motor racing a lot of the time um, they 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 like the look of it the smell of it they what it could potentially do for them they um, but actually too often it they go off half cock for whatever reason you know there's a not an under, not enough understanding about the scale of the challenge, not an understand, and and if there's any degree of kind of hubris or arrogance, you know, they quickly get found out because you come in against people who are doing it all the time, and and you discover actually there's a reason why not everyone does this all the time. It's a it's a fundamentally difficult thing to be to be good at, and I mean I think one of the for me one of the great things about Mercedes' achievement in the last decade is that Mercedes finally, the penny finally dropped as to how a manufacturer should do Formula One, which is that you create a very entrepreneurial team, which is distinct from the parent company. And and in their case, actually owned partly by Toto and of course now owned also partly by Jim Ratcliffe uh, from uh, Ineos Group. You know, Damon Benz's involvement is only a third. Porsche may not have thought that through. I mean, if, if they bought a third of Red Bull, Porsche would have a place at the table, a place at the boardroom, a place at the meetings, but they wouldn't control the whole company. And Red Bull, you know, but obviously Porsche wanted more than that. And yes, when you've got four, five, six manufacturers involved, there's going to be one or two who do some who do quite a lot of winning. There's going to be maybe a third who gets the odd win, and then there's going to be two or three who just don't get the victories. And and maybe the numbers do stack up with the viewership and the audiences and whatever. But the problem is it's. It still costs, particularly now that we have a budget cap, you're still spending the same amount as everyone else, but you're not winning. And so the return on investment is much more difficult to to justify. And, you know, the point that you made about like the Audi launch, I, I also looked at the personalities involved and I thought, hmm, this is an interesting start. 
And, you know, if you look at Alpine, so you've got Laura Rossi, who is chief executive of the Alpine car company, effectively running the F1 program or the, you know, and doing a lot of the lot of the uh, front-facing piece on the F1 program. And that seems strange. And and with the recent debacle over drivers, you kind of think, ah, oh, well, so there's a kind of an implication. You can't you can't do Formula One as a as just part of your job. You know, it has to be absolute full on huge commitment and and throw the throw the kitchen sink at it. If you'd have any you know whatever people listening think of you know, whether you're a Mercedes fan, you love Total Wolf, or a Red Bull fan, you love Christian Horner, whether you don't like the competition or whatever. There's a reason why Christian Horner and Total Wolf have dominated Formula One with their teams for the last dozen years. And that comes down to the degree of commitment that they have personally and the team behind them has to to Formula One and their shareholders have to. I mean, there's total commitment there. Uh, they leave no stone unturned. They're going to take no prisoners. They are absolutely committed to the task of winning. And I think everyone else, if there's compromises built in anywhere else, that they're not going to succeed. And not many of the car manuf- not many car manufacturers will come in and do it on a no compromise basis of absolutely going for it. Um, I do wonder what will happen to to Porsche. Um, the the kind of the, the the team that strikes me as being it ought to be perfect to be bought in its entirety is Williams because the Williams family sold it to a private fund, a family fund, which is headed by Doralton. You know, they're not selling anything. It's not like they're a car manufacturer, an energy drinks company. They're not selling sports cars, whatever. They don't even have the diversified technologies business, particularly, you know, they've, they've offloaded, offloaded that. You know, if the people behind Doralton, if the family fund behind Doralton wants to make a real killing on their investment, now would be a good time to sell the whole thing to Porsche. And then Porsche would get what they want. You know, Jos Capito's, what's he's into, you know, two years as chief executive at Williams. Williams really, really need to start making progress. That is, if they have the ambition to become a winning team again and to ever challenge for the championship in the future. And we all know how long a road that is. I mean, and that's a that's a kind of four to five year road. I mean, really, if, if any team was to be looking at 26 and saying, that's our new, that's a chance for us to press a reset button, it's Williams because that gives you 2023, 2024, 2025 to get everything right so that you hit the ground running with a, with a, a you know, potentially winning car in 2026. But it's it's interesting that despite you know the fact that Yost and uh, FX the, the you know chief technical officer um, are ex Volkswagen Group, there's been no mention at least publicly of either an Audi or a Porsche tie-up. Uh, but for me, that's I kind of look at it and think that's the one that feels like it ought to be the next step for Porsche, but. You know, they'd, they'd have to want to commit in the way that I just mentioned. It has to be, it has to be all or nothing. On, on that note, it's quite interesting because Audi, before they settled on jumping into Bedford Sauber, they did their due diligence on Aston Martin and, and Williams. And obviously they came out either second or third best. So they, they obviously know the flaws or certainly the umbrella Volkswagen group knows the flaws with that setup and now, now have to assess because I think, I think I'm right in saying the deadline to sign up for 2026 is the 15th of October. So as we record this, that's what, three and a half weeks it's away. Quick. Yeah. It's soon. 
And then, and then that three and a half years to set up an F1 program, or, or you know, if if Porsche still wants to revive this uh, or have its own uh, front, uh, front its own engine partnership, that's a that's a lot of work to do because you know Williams would have to rip up that contract with the Mercedes powertrain if if it was to jump into bed with Porsche, and and they've said they want two different powertrains. It's not going to be a rebranded Audi wanted back of Williams. It's not a lot of work. But if I might just go back and uh, after after the coverage of the death of the Queen the praise for the BBC has been widespread. So let me introduce an element of BBC balance to the podcast. And so I think Red, I think Porsche had some, had their own reservations about going into, into uh, bed with uh, Red Bull. I don't think it's a total one way street. And that is that, you know, obviously they want to install someone alongside Horner and Marco, but, I don't think it would have suited them what Zach Brown would call the optics. Uh, I don't think it would have suited that to have Marco blowing his valve about his own drivers and what he said in the past, Valtteri Bottas's pants overtaking. And there's that great one. He, I think it was when the hybrid era first came in, or maybe it was after 2017. Uh, and uh, Marco said, oh, Adrian, he's castrated by these engine rules that killed a sport. I can imagine why Marco wouldn't want, or Porsche wouldn't want Marco going off and saying that. And then if Porsche, you know, the logical conclusion is that one day they want their, their halo German driver, how will they want still Marco calling shots on that front? I don't know. So I, I, I say it's, I, I can imagine, as you write in your or your leader for this month, uh, Codders, or uh, part of it is that they had too long, I think, to think things through. It wasn't like an impulsive, you know, go go with your heart. They've had time to introduce an element of head. So I think Porsche management uh, and obviously the Volkswagen Group is now led by the uh, the Porsche CEO. He has he has both roles at present. I think they'll have looked at a few things and thought, okay, this isn't going quite the way we want. If, if Porsche are going cold, do we really need to move heaven and earth to sort of get them back on side? Probably not. Maybe they looked at Williams and thought, Doralton just sounds like a Netflix costume drama. All I can say is I hope when I'm 79, like Dr. Marco, that someone is worried about what I might do when I'm 83 um, <laughs> <laughs> in 2026. Uh, but anyway, he's still going strong. I think the thing is that in Formula One, there are some people who say absolutely nothing of interest, and then there are other people who shoot from the hip. And it is the latter constituency that the media are drawn to. Uh, it used to be that if something happened at Mercedes, you'd go and find Nicky Lauda because he would have uh, an opinion on it and he would say something opinionated about it before either Toto or their multilingual press attaché, Bradley Lord, had uh, got the hand, got the chance to slap a gagging order on him. Uh, and, and so he'd say something. And I think the basically going to going to helmet marco is is route one when you need a controversial quote and it's it's something that the you know, the austrian media media do and then the other the, the the other media pick up those quotes obviously it gets fed through the german and and his his austrian accent probably confuses a few syllables and it comes out even more fiery than it was intended because very often when when something is translated some 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 of the nuance gets lost doesn't it so uh, it's it's a difficult thing in the media landscape at the moment where so much news is quote driven and it's it's the actual words rather than the sense in which it's spoken but i suppose we're digressing now because um you know we as 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 f1 media we have to keep the 
um, the news machine running 24-7 and Grand Prix only happen every few weeks or every week if it's a triple header. Or you can look at what's published in, in other magazines. Uh, on, on this month, uh, on the cover of GP Racing this month, we contemplate Lewis Hamilton and not just the fascinating pink ensemble he wore for the cover shoot uh, of a recent issue of Vanity Fair. He kind of looked like the second coming of Don Johnson in Miami Vice in that high-waisted short-sleeved garb. Fantastic. Only Lewis can carry that off. But, um, you know, it it was a very interesting interview. And months and months ago, as it turned out, while the interviews for this Vanity Fair piece were happening, I I approached our regular correspondent, Andrew Benson, and said, is is it too early to drop um, several thousand metric gallons of cold water on the theory that Lewis is a spent force and about to retire. At the time, he said, well, actually, it's, it's kind of a little bit tricky to work out because there's mixed messages coming from the from, from the Hamilton camp. But at the same time, the narrative that he's being absolutely tonked by George Russell is wrong. And this, you know, this this was around the time of the Miami Grand Prix. We were having this conversation right about the time when the tabloid press were at fever pitch saying Lewis has had it. He should cash in his P45 now and take his private plane off somewhere and make way for someone else. So finally, uh, I managed to persuade Andrew to, to that he'd got enough data to write this analysis of where uh, Lewis Hamilton is now. And he's come up with, with, with what I, not to bang my own drum as the man who commissioned him to write it, but I, I thought a really, really good story that just has taken apart Lewis's season and analysed the early season wobble that's related to last last season's controversy. It's deconstructed the whole business of whether he's firing on all cylinders. Clearly he is. Uh, And also we look at how Mercedes has now come to rely on his unique skill set to restore them to the front of the grid because this is a team which is struggling with its car. And not only that, um, they are finding that they've lost correlation with all their tools. So what's now needed is a driver with Lewis's experience and speed to be able to feed back to them and say, no, this is working. That's not working. Let's try this. Let's do that. This is the way forward. And they're doing things like putting a floor on the car, which hasn't been tested in the wind tunnel, but relies on his backside to sign it off. And I think that that is quite fascinating. I wouldn't normally read a sentence out, but I love that the point where Andrew talks about um, Lewis is a man whose worldview is one of perpetual struggle. Uh, it's what he feeds off and it's what motivates him. And I think that's that's so true, you know, and he, I've had the opportunity to work with him and um, I mean, he, he will happily talk about what motivates him in life and how as a child, you know, he failed to face a lot of obstacles, you know, being bullied at school and then, you know, some of the racism that he faced in, in karting and the aftermath of Abu Dhabi and then Lewis going away, taking that winter off, coming off social media, uh, which of course in itself then raised lots of questions. Why has he come off social media? Why is he not giving us a narrative? What is he thinking? Is he going to retire? All that kind of stuff. Then coming back only to discover that Mercedes-Benz have a car that's uncompetitive and uh, got some fundamental problems. But actually, rather, he's not a quitter. You know, he's a fighter. He likes to come back and fight. And the team know the strengths that he has on that front. And you have to say, you know, they've done a, they've done an admirable job considering where they were at the beginning of the year. Um, they've, you know, operationally, um, they're kind of, their execution at race weekends is 
is better than Ferrari. Um, and only the other day I was, you know, somebody was asking me about, you know, Red Bull and the championship. And I said, actually, the thing that's fascinating to me is what happens for second place in the in the constructors because if, if Ferrari continued to to trip up and, and God forbid have any more reliability issues, etc. I think George Russell and Lewis Hamilton will uh, enjoy vanquishing them. And so there's there's actually a huge motivation there. And Toto, as I said earlier on, massively committed individual and he knows it in Lewis. He has a fellow fighter. Um, I think the George Russell comparison is really interesting. I was very struck by the performance differential. You know, Lewis out qualifying George, not by a huge, huge, huge amount in terms of races, the number of races where he's out qualified, but the margin, you know, it's at 57 thousandths of a second on average. I mean, that's not, it's not two tenths or three, 57 thousandths of a second is basically little to, to choose between them. It's incredibly impressive in terms of both Lewis and George, because as Andrew says in the article, you know, George is in the first flush of being with, you know, Mercedes and the enjoyment that he's getting out of that. You know, a bad Mercedes is a lot better than a good Williams. Um, so he's, you know, he's, he's enjoying every element of it. But I think the it's a really interesting piece. I think, you know, the, the whole point about the discussion around Lewis is, you know, for me also, to some extent, it, to, to some extent, we all have to take a step back and, you know, he is 37. And um, and therefore, whatever we say about the future, no matter how motivated he is, no matter, uh, you know, what there is to come, that there is that ticking clock. And one of the things about this year is, you know, I thought it was very admirable that Mercedes were admitting we don't quite know what the problem is. You know, they've been quite open about that. We're now recording this podcast end of you know end of September. Mercedes are well into next year's car. The question, the big question is, where are they with next year's car? Because if Red Bull carry the momentum from this year onwards, there's no reason to believe that they won't. You know where what what happens when when if Lewis gets on board the car next year and finds that he's going to be permanently you know battling for second and third again. That becomes that ultimately that starts to become demoralizing at a point in his career where he really, really wants to be in a competitive car. So I think it's a long way from being over. I think he and Mercedes will continue to work hard. Uh, there seems to be quite a harmonious relationship, at least at the moment, between Lewis and George, which is incredibly important to Mercedes after their difficult experience with Lewis and Nico uh, Rosberg. So at the moment, there's kind of still everything to play for. One final thing I'll say and then hand over to you, Matt. But as it got towards the end of this this piece and I was reading about, you know, Lewis's other interests and, and the fact that he, is, he has always authentically maintained that the other interests are really important to him, interests outside of Formula One are really important to him because they actually give him a break from the pressure of F1 and he comes back into F1 refreshed. But you know, I was reading the words at the end and thinking there's, there's a slightly different tone. You know, he he knows he doesn't have anything left to prove and he absolutely, he doesn't have anything left to prove in Formula One in terms of speed and competitiveness and racecraft and everything else that goes with those 100 plus Grand Prix victories and seven World Championship titles bracket eight if it wasn't for what happened in Abu Dhabi. But you have the sense that even he is aware that 
the he's moving into the end game, you know, and it's a question of how long that end game then becomes. Is it a year? Is it two years? You know, is it is it the contract? Is Lewis the is is Lewis going to do what his mentor Nicky Lauda did and just turn up in the Toto's office one day and say I'm walking away? You know, I don't want to I don't want to I don't want to race this weekend. You know, will that will that be Lewis's exit? Will it be quite a dramatic exit? Um, because I don't think for Lewis the 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 kind of the petering out career will have any appeal. You know, I don't see Lewis doing what Damon Hill did, particularly the second half of '99's final year in F1, which uh, which was a shame. You know, if once you make your mind up, you need to go. And uh, so anyway, it's it's interesting to to read that piece, and I thought Andrew did a great job of getting the the balance right and. The insight into the fact that there's a lot, there's a lot of miles left in in Lewis yet, but the end game is ultimately out there. I sort of see that when Hamilton's out of F1, he's gone. He doesn't come back into the paddock. Certainly not on TV. I feel he's then sort of becomes slightly intangible. At the minute, we as press, we hang on his every word. When he's outside of F1, does that change? Will his audience change? Where will he go to to sort of get the attention to shine the light on the work he's doing? In the same way that I think one of the things Vettel has been grasping with as he has announced his retirement is, what's his audience when he leaves and is then behind closed doors with his with his family? Is having renewable technology powering a house and appearing on Question Time, is that enough for him to draw maximum attention and to get what he wants out of his environmental concerns? I wonder, is the same with Hamilton? Does his audience diminish? Do we, as people who like motorsport first and foremost, does our sort of tacit understanding and going along with his causes and whatever, does that diminish if he's not in F1 and right at the forefront. I wonder if that, you know, does MBS or the, the president of the FIA doesn't listen to him? Does does the we races one gestures happen quite so much if Lewis Hamilton isn't in that paddock? I, I don't think they do. And as he's maintained all the way through his career, he can bit an NBA game on the Friday night and put it on pole on, on the Saturday. So he can manage both simultaneously. So if he is given a car that can fight for, you know, wins, then... I, th- I think he stays in F1 exactly and avoids that decline, but for as long as possible to get maximum eyes. Also, let's not forget, he'll be getting a nice salary throughout that time, so maximum funds towards those projects. So I think that's a really interesting thing. And, and as he has seen Mercedes develop, okay, at Spa, they were, they were, they were off the boil. But it, the narrative around, or certainly what he's saying to the press is, has changed so much. So in prep for this podcast, I was reminded of something he said in Monza, and I hope you don't mind, but I'm just going to read some, some direct, direct speech from him that he said, um, um, and the narrative was around Daniel Ricciardo uh, joining Mercedes as reserve driver to potentially replace him in 24 when his contract's up. And he said, um, uh, the stories of retirement and what's stopping me, I feel healthier than I've ever felt. I focus a lot on that. I'm feeling fit. I love what I'm doing and I don't plan on stopping anytime soon. I'm sorry, Daniel, but no, I feel like I can race for quite a bit longer. So I'll potentially be steering towards that. That's as emphatic as Lewis Hamilton has been in the post Dabby Dabby. I can't find motivation. I thought about walking away from sport that he will be here for years to come. So I think, well, uh, certainly, certainly a contract ex- uh, a contract extension beyond this one. So I think I think that's a positive sign for him keeping him in in the championship. But but to sort of go back to where I started, I just find it fascinating. What what is his internal conflict between when is the right time to retire and do I have any risk? Yes, obviously we know he's you know welcome on any red carpet and and can turn up to the Met Gala and, and buy a table and still has that profile better than anyone else across social media, better than anyone else in in the sport, not just in F1, in the entire sport. 
But is there a, is there any sort of concern that if I'm away, yes, I can still invest and yes, I can still work with with business partners and whatever to to do achieve what I want to do with the foundation and mission forty four. But is is the audience there? Can the impact be quite quite as great? And I, I find that really fascinating sort of dichotomy he might have. Yeah, I, yeah. You're, you're raising a really important point, which is that I mean, let's be clear. He Lewis has a massive fan base, and he's brought a new fan base to Formula One. What happens to that fan base when Lewis leaves F1? There, there's a question. You know, um, Lewis's fans are, you know, passionate about him. Um, he's the first black driver in Formula One. This morning, before this podcast, I did a, um, I was involved in a diversity and inclusion panel with a, an international company, and they were asking me about the impact that Lewis has had on Formula One in terms of, and, and in, you know, DNI. And I was saying, you know, really. It was probably 20 years ago that Formula One teams, you know, leadership levels realised we need to get more women into this sport because we have a shortage of engineers, not enough women are doing engineering, we need to address that. So there's a kind of a real push towards gender diversity, you know, going back a couple of decades, F1 in schools, uh, Formula student, etc. But it's Lewis who then set the, the tone in terms of... Um, being the first black driver and making everyone, let's face it, rethink the fact that when you walk down the paddock or the pit lane, there's, there's all, you know, essentially no black people working in Formula One. Uh, yes, there are people from um, ethnic minorities uh, over the years and the drivers from lots of different countries around the world. But, you know, he, he has had such a profound impact on the sport. Now, I know the one thing he's absolutely passionate about is that when he retires as a driver and he leaves the sport, he doesn't want to go down the history as the only black driver there ever was in F1. So he's putting a huge effort into making sure that that does not happen. And I don't think, therefore, that... I think when he retires from driving a racing car in Formula One, I think he I think he will leave the sport in many areas. I think he will... But I think the one area where he will not leave the sport is on driving the diversity and inclusion piece. I think he and Total Wolf have invested too much time, effort and money in it. Mercedes have invested a huge amount of their sort of equity as a, as a team in supporting Lewis's programs. Uh, Toto and Lewis have the Ignite program. They've invested half a million pounds in, uh, in grants to uh, Motorsport UK um, and also the uh, Royal Academy of Engineering. A Royal Engineering Academy. Um, so they've done a lot already, and I think that's going to keep on going. It'd be very interesting to see what happens because Lewis could easily, if he wanted to, acquire a percentage of the Mercedes-Benz team. It only has to be a small involvement, but it means when he turns up at a race, he's not turning up as an ex-driver. He's turning up as a current shareholder uh, of the team. You know, he could be on the board. He could be an advisor to the board. He could be, I mean, effectively, Lewis could move into the similar position that Nicky had Nicky Lauda had in terms of, you know, his interaction with the team, all that kind of thing. So he's very passionate about not um, not being the only black driver. And I don't think he wants to, I don't think he'll want to leave Formula One and, and just disappear off to America to get involved in, in film and music and fashion. I think film and music and fashion will definitely be part of what he goes on to do. But I think his diversity and inclusion work in F1, Matt, will... I mean, as you, as you rightly point out, it's been such an important part of uh, <clears throat> of what he's driven, and I think that that will that will have to continue because if he actually severed all if 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 he severed all links, that would be extraordinary. Having invested the time and effort in the Hamilton Commission, 
in the Ignite program with Toto, equality and rights for all, be it gender, be it sex, be it race, whatever. I mean, he's so been so, so pivotal on that. Um, and, and you have to believe that, you know, if he can invest in sports teams in America, it's not too much of a leap of faith to imagine him sitting down with Toto over a, over a coffee one day and saying, uh, you know, what can we structure going forward? Because I, I don't want to turn my back on the sport. So it'll be interesting to, to see how it pans out. I think he said as much, hasn't he, with the NFL investment and also when, you know, I know there's some poking fun that he's, Arsenal fan but then investing in Chelsea and I now wouldn't I would I would also put that now with you know Jim Ratcliffe obviously making noise about Manchester United if he ever was to buy it I think Lewis Hamilton is involved there as well because he you know he he can claim to be a fan or whatever but it's not about that he said openly that any investment small or big it's not about whether I can sit on the board and say we signed this strike or whatever it's about what we can do for for the community so that again what way he's he's branching out because he, he said time and time again, I don't care about records. I don't care about statistics. Obviously, the eight world titles, I'm even clear, Schumacher and not settle, but go a long way in that, you know, greatest of all time debate. That is obviously a huge motivating factor. But, you know, I, I think this he sees as a, a far greater legacy than, than his sporting achievements. So how that much, how that plays into retirement and to uh, bring it back round to sort of strictly what happens on track is, is what Mercedes can do next year. You know, there's, there's a reason every, every, video game lots of movies start with you at the bottom and by the end of it you're a successful millionaire with all the flash cars and whatever because it's all about the story and progressing and building something isn't it and even though Hamilton is no doubt in the twilight of his F1 career perhaps there's a you know there's still a massive story to be there about whether he can you know turn this W13 alongside the factory in, into a winner you know people still you know he's had the challenge of 2009 but people say it's always been him in the best car and, and whatnot so I think that again is just to you know sort of tick every box you know shut up all the doubters as far as possible I think yeah still what he can do on track is is uh, by by basically saying what I was saying earlier it's not to diminish the the motivation he gets from what he does uh, you know on a Friday Saturday and Sunday at a racetrack one of the other conversations we had uh, at the conceptual stage of, of commissioning this feature was that um, to, to what extent is Lewis now very motivated and aware uh, of the fact that with the retirement of Sebastian Vettel, he is now the sole person willing to have these sorts of conversations uh, and to use their profile to actually do something above and beyond driving a car very quickly on a Sunday afternoon and, and winning races. So, yeah, I think that's a definitely a very, very important part of the mix. And um, for those of you guest joining us uh, from the Autosport channel. Uh, if you are uh, Autosport Plus subscribers, you will be able to uh, read that feature very shortly. Uh, elsewhere in the magazine this month, uh, we go around, we, we've sent someone on location. We've actually come out from under our rock. We've sent a photographer somewhere. Oleg's got in his car and he's he's driven to Denmark. Uh, we've gone to uh, Kevin Magnusson's hometown of Roskilde uh, and run around there with Kevin himself and What's fascinating about Kevin, he's, you know, he's he's not someone who sticks his neck above the parapet and talks about social issues, but he is someone who lives life his own way. And he's made his family home in Copenhagen rather than moving to some tax haven. Now, previously in his career, he has moved away. And generally speaking, it's coincided with him being booted out of Formula One. So maybe there's a bit of superstitiousness going on here. But he says he tried Dubai and hated it. He'd much rather be near family and friends. And in fact, there was a time when he it looked like his 
his motor racing career was going to end and his uncle made him get a job as a welder. So uh, it's, it's a very interesting feature. He actually takes us to his childhood home where he lived with his mother until he was a teenager. So very, very fascinating and revealing. And I don't know about you guys, Kevin's not someone who likes being interviewed. Uh, and in, in this one, he actually kind of came out of his shell a bit. He was, he was a lot more relaxed. A great interview. I, I love the fact that it's it's got so many personal touches in terms of it's not just a not, not a it's not Oleg sitting down in some uh, barren motorhome over a coffee, but actually you know with him in Denmark and going for a wander. And I love the fact that none of the locals stop him and ask for autographs. <laughs> and the, the first people to do are French tourists who spot him and come over and say hello, Mister Magnuson. I mean, it's, it's great. You know, it's very. Very authentic. Also, you know, it is interesting. Some, I mean, there's a lot of drivers who live in in Monaco um, or some other tax haven. I mean, Switzerland was the other popular one. You know, Jackie Stewart was there, and obviously Michael and Alan Prost and so on. Dubai is another one. I have to say that um, I kind of understand why he wouldn't be that enthused with uh, with Dubai. It takes a uh, takes a lot out of you to get used to that uh, that climate and I mean I mean that in the broader sense the whole climate that you have to live within uh, down there so good for him you know back home in Denmark and obviously he stru- must have structured things well enough that whatever he's earning from Formula One you know he's going to have a secure a secure retirement um, I think that Magnus's story is a great one you know there's a father-son thing there's the fact that he came in you know he had his kind of false start as it were with McLaren and, and then obviously with Haas and then leaving and then coming back and it's, it's so much to it it's a good story and he's he's very authentic and I, I think one of the things about there's drivers who, who don't mind doing interviews but actually a lot of the drivers who don't mind doing interviews I think in the end it becomes just a bit of a rote you know they just say they say the same old things you know they just they've got a 20 minute passion that they'll give to any journalist on, on any range of topics but so then when you get a, an interview like this where you, you obviously Oleg wants to go a little bit deeper into the Magnuson story, but then Kevin having agreed to do it, he does it properly. He gives a real insight. He gives, gives puts some meat on the bone about what makes him tick and the background to it and the family stories and the trials and tribulations of, of getting to where he's gotten to the, the honesty of his relationship with Gunther Steiner, you know, and uh, you know whether that's, you know, Gunther telling him in, in very clear terms why there wasn't any future with him at, at Haas at that point and then bringing him back. So it's a really good, really good authentic piece. I enjoyed it immensely and I uh, think Oleg did a great job and well done Kevin, you know, because lots of drivers wouldn't make the time to do it properly like that and uh, and I, I like that, uh, that sort of level of commitment. So the readers will get a lot out of it. Matt, of course, you've probably come across Kevin in the paddock here and there. Um, not someone who enjoys having a dictaphone thrust under his nose, but you know, quite quite a fiery driver. I mean, where where do you see him in, in terms of his value to Haas? Um, Gunter Steiner said he was basically the first person he thought of ringing when he decided that he was going to give Nikita Mazepin the flick at the beginning of the year. Uh, at the at the moment, he's immensely important, isn't he? Because not only is he, you know, he can. He's experienced, he can lead the development of that car, but whoever you put alongside him, whether it's Mick Schumacher or indeed getting rid of Mick Schumacher next to one, Magnussen's a good litmus test of where that driver is at and whether, you know, where, whether their benchmark and obviously his experience hand, they can, 
they can learn off him, whoever whoever the the new person is. Like you say, he doesn't he doesn't give too much away from the media. Uh, but he was he was particularly he was particularly good, obviously, when he first came back. So um, was at Bahrain preseason testing and the first couple of races in sort of Bahrain and Saudi Arabia, where you had the journos coming to their first uh, F one event of the season. He was talking about you know, how he got the phone call, how he you know. Uh, uh, Retract or got out of his Peugeot sports car drive. How how he came back in the energy and how like so to to draw a, a comparison. I remember speaking to Jean Eric Verne saying he was he actually felt ready to leave F one in some sense because he just couldn't get his head around going from karting and single seater uh, series going from like you know wins and 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 podiums to then being like happy with eighth or ninth. He just really couldn't grasp it and he found that really hard. Whereas Magnussen's the opposite. Opposite. He's like well I can win in sports cars in America, which feels okay but nothing compared to you know uh the the elation of of doing well in an f1 race whether that is just for a point in in the house as it has been this year so i think he's come back and is is completely at peace with where he's at and you know it probably does him well to be the established team leader rather than that sort of you know uh, him him and him and Grosjean could sort of one was i think Grosjean was probably the faster on his day but more more prone to crashing and the competitive order used to fluctuate massively between them, but I think I think it's good, and and he's he's got a better sense of worth to F one now, as in people appreciate him more now he's back, and again probably after you know there's there's not much love love lost for Mazepin, and uh, they see how well he does against Schumacher, so there's an appreciation for him, and and also it's probably a good time to be an F one driver in terms of signing those deals with Gillette or Lidl. Was it Lidl that has did where uh, they appeared in the pamphlet and uh, Schumacher and Steiner were in some awful like later host or something because but anyway very the, much so yeah we gave them a little respect absolutely but the whole point is is that commercially like <laughs> okay you know magnuson might not be recognized or he is recognized on the street they just don't come and ask for selfies but it's it's probably quite a, a good time to be an f1 driver and ride that wave of popularity if you want to sign a couple of you know aftershade deals and stuff just just before you retire but he's uh you know, uh, there's there's very few drivers now. I think F1's in a good place where, you know, if, if Latifi doesn't come back for next season because the points he's not scoring are, are, are worth more than the 15 to 20 million, you know, a season he, he does bring in sponsorship. Magnussen's not in that camp anymore. It's probably, you know, he's not he's not considered a, a pay driver. So he, he brings he brings value. And, and you know, through Schumacher's, expensive crashes and a few other things has to right up against it on on the budget and this season was all about bringing in a new car and developing it well after a couple of seasons out in the wilderness they haven't done that now so any any extra you know anything they can find that brings them extra performance is a good thing and i think uh magnuson is probably one of those i think the little thing was chronicled partially in one of the episodes of drive to survive that focuses on them i i, I could be wrong um but it, it rings a bell. And it's quite strange, isn't it? Because Haas, for a team that has been largely stuck to the back of the grid, um, since the certainly from the inception of that programme, they do enjoy a substantial amount of airtime, principally because they're so open. And of course, um, Gunter has, uh, you know, a, a lexicon like a sewer and uh, he he actually speaks and they have a bit of character and they have a story and so you can you can understand how how that presence might feed into a little bit of commercial reward as you say with a lucrative um, Gillette sponsorship or something uh, whereas there are certain teams that do not appear in that program at all just because either their drivers are uncooperative or there's 
there's not really much to them. I mean, there's a certain team in green at the moment that you don't see much at all simply because their drivers don't cooperate, won't let Netflix come around to their houses. So I, I suppose in some ways, commercial reward is now does have a, a tangible link to the access you're prepared to give you know, one of the most important TV programs. And I suppose we're, we're coming up to our hour, but we, we can very, very briefly touch on what Ron Dennis would no doubt in the past have called fiscal matters and commerce um, because, uh, you know, we, we, we live in the era of the budget cap agreed very, very painfully over a lot of negotiations. The level of that budget cap was a subject, not not just the philosophy of having one in the first place, but the, the level it should be set at was, of course, of much existential angst. And the idea was that it was supposed to usher in a new era of competition on equal footing, help make the teams into billion-dollar franchises, enable these commercial connections – uh, and yet now we have a situation where we're having to adjust it for inflation and changing it so soon is is pretty unprecedented. And Mark, in this month's issue, you've you, you've you've done the math, as they say in America, and basically un- unpicked a few of the arguments behind this this sort of very hotly contested inflationary rate. You know, we we do live in an era of of spiraling cost of living. I, as I, I sit here shivering as I speak to you in the coldest room of my house. So where 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 is Formula One going if if it's you know the the editor of one of its biggest selling magazines uh, is is sitting in the coldest room of the house? Well you talk about the unprecedented nature of the budget cap being revised. It's because we live in unprecedented times and there is no doubt that uh, I'm sure it'll get revised again, I think, in some way, shape or form, or at least there will be discussions about what next. Because, first of all, let's talk about the things that have happened which were really unexpected. So the FIA and the teams for, sat down and agreed the budget cap based on a, a number of assumptions in terms of expenditure and budgets and what you could buy for that money and what you could do with that money. Um, then President Putin decided to invade Ukraine, um, has sent energy costs spiralling, which has sent inflation spiralling because those energy costs are being passed on in all kinds of ways, cost of manufacturing goods around the world, cost of shipping goods around the world, cost of flying goods around the world. I mean, everything, there's just a a compound effect. So the inflationary pressures have been extraordinary and this means that individual members of formula one staff and teams are facing you know unprecedented increase in costs at home so inflationary pressures put costs put pressure on um on salaries because people need more salary to cover those bills i mean in the uk we know only too well about the uh, the energy crisis and the, the huge increase in costs that everyone's currently facing. And, and obviously, the government hasn't fully tackled that yet. So there's lots of issues to do with that. Um, but then there's this in the inflationary pressures on the goods coming into a Formula One factory and, and the, all of the goods and services F1 teams are buying. So lots of inflationary pressures there. And those inflationary pressures are into double digits. You know, we're into double double digit inflation. And that's something that was not expected. You know, we're talking about a world where for for a long time we've been 
there's been a target of kind of a couple of percent of inflation at most, and now we're into double digits. So it's off the scale. And quite naturally, that's putting pressure. And Toto, I mean, in the piece, I, I uh, have quoted Toto Wolf talking about the fact that, for example, Mercedes want to look after their staff. They know that they're going to have to do something to tweak their salaries. There's going to have to be, I mean, whether it's one-off payments to deal with what's coming up this winter with uh, you know the winter energy crisis that everyone's talking about. But essentially what we're talking about is there's a world of uncertainty out there. No one knows how long the war in Ukraine is going to last for. No one knows what Europe is going to suffer this winter he, you know, because there's essentially not enough energy available. Um, the German government are asking if, uh, if the whole country can find a way to reduce energy consumption by about five percent at the moment to just cope with with the supply and demand requirements in the months ahead so lots of pressure it's led to uh particularly the the larger teams that have had to come down in terms of their budget then pushing for the increase you've got other people like uh alpine so alpine were the one that weren't particularly keen on on changing the budget cap and the point i make in the piece is that Otmar Safnauer, perhaps more than most, is used to being a team principal for a you know cash-strapped team. So Alpine's view is, well, we, we built in some inflationary pressure into our budget planning and we can cope with it. But the other nine teams were happy to have the increase. Um, the increase in the budget cap is not that much. It's only a few percent. Um, but one of, the re- one of the other factors is that the teams get paid sponsorship and their prize money in the United States dollar. So even if you've got teams based in the UK, Italy and and Switzerland, they're receiving a significant proportion of their income in the United States dollar. Not getting paid in pounds sterling, not getting paid in euros, not getting paid in Swiss francs. At the time that we are recording this, you know, a single US dollar today will effectively get you 88 pence. You know, so and for those listening who perhaps don't follow currency markets the way I do, um if you go back just a, just a year ago, we'd, we'd have, a single US dollar would have given you 70 pence. So you've gone from 70 pence to 87 pence. That's a huge increase. And what that means, I mean, in terms of, I mean, I put a figure on it in the, in the, in the article. It's worth about, so the money that you get is worth, in terms of the budget cap, it's worth about 7 million pounds more up expenditure that you have in sterling in the UK. Now, what do you pay for in sterling? Well, you pay your salaries in sterling so that's obviously a big chunk you pay a lot of your travel in sterling if you're a uk uh, based team you pay for domestic supplies you know so any goods or services you're buying from the motorsport community in um, you know silicon valley of motorsport here on the m40 corridor you're paying for those in pounds sterling so there's some upside on that so there are some you know there's there's downsides and upsides but it's a time of huge huge fluctuation and the situation with the U.S. dollar and the the and sterling, the pound sterling, and also the U.S. dollar and the euro. So the euro and the U.S. dollar have reached parity. So the U.S. dollar is worth, you know, worth a euro. This is unprecedented. So there's a there's a lot of talk at the moment that we're entering a sterling crisis, and that the government's going to have to do something because that we are really out of balance to where we normally are at in terms of the the currency valuations. And so, really, this is a this is my way of explaining. We're in the in the middle of uncharted territory in so many ways, and that's putting huge pressure on the teams. And therefore, there's a requirement for the budget cap to have a degree of flexibility 
to cope with where we are now and what might happen in the future. So I think it's far from being the last time we'll be talking about this. Uh, there will continue to be pressures to, to, to revisit it. Um, and I think such are the changes. We're not talking about small changes here. Such are these profound changes happening in currency markets and in the, in the global economy that um, the FIA and the teams will not be able to just ignore it. They'll, they'll keep having to come back and revisiting it. So I think this is a story that will, will run and run until such time as war in Europe ends and the energy crisis dissipates. So could be, you know, how long's a piece of string? We don't know how long Putin is going to keep on um, at this particular strategy that he's deployed in Ukraine. Yeah, seems to be he's not going to uh, do one until he can do so gracefully. I'm not quite sure how he can uh, make that sort of exit. Um, Matt, obviously, we we also have our own little bit of uh, difficulty with inflation because you know we 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 travel to Grand Prix, don't we? So that. We, we, we've seen the effect of this inflation this year. Absolutely, we? considering we, we face a similar problem in that we uh, run the continent, so we spend in euros and then we uh, we have to do our expenses system uh, in pounds, which is then paid to us uh, from, uh, or it's then uh, converted into dollars and back into pounds again. So uh, I have absolute sympathy for the uh, for the uh, money that they're, they're not getting back. But it is, it is interesting. I think it's good. It shows F1 and the FIA to be... Um, sort of fleet of foot in, in the circumstances to, to come back with this. Uh, but again, where it's going, it'll be more, but I still think, I still think that the, the, the bigger fecal storm with the cost cap is coming in the sense that we know that teams that we teams are breaking it and how, how far you get down the road with. So if they're, if they're breaking it and they were to, let's say, win a, win a championship, maybe even a championship double, if they've, spent dramatically over the cost cap how how do they get back from there because the FIA can't strip both titles even though it's talked about sporting punishments because that's such a terrible terrible look but obviously there'll be outrage from the others so as Mark says we're going to be coming back to the cost cap for this season seasons down the line you know how how it gets resolved will be will be uh will be fascinating to see to use that that lovely parlance but you know that well-worn cliche that people very often end features on it'll be absolutely but to you see. know well you know one, one, one thing i'll say to you matt is that the, the senior directors of every team have to, are personally liable if there can be shown to be sort of malicious intent to overspend the budget cap and that's you know, if we were to get into that territory where the FIA are saying a particular team just decided to go for it and to keep throwing money at it and either try to hide that or actually not hide it and say, well, what are you going to do about it? Well, actually, the answer is the FIA could potentially, I mean, I mean the rules are very clear. You could be banned. You know, you could be banned from working in F1. So, my goodness, you've just raised the prospect that we go into the winter with some dreadful budget cap explosion, you know, behind the scenes. Honestly, after after what happened last year with Abu Dhabi, we really need to just finish this year's championship, have everyone smiling, have the awards, go into 2023. It'd be dreadful to think that we would then face a, a budget cap cluster so the, <laughs> yes. the, resolution, the resolution then could be what would the FIA do with Ferrari uh, for its uh, for its uh, illegal oil ban just go it's one sentence saying the matter has been resolved privately and then just leave it yes, at that exactly we we had a meeting uh, we all and and it's all it's completely confidential 
But by the way, we've all got nice company cars. <laughs> uh, the confidential <laughs> settlement. Um, you know, and unlike the, you know, it, it, it's established practice that the first five minutes of the recording of this podcast has to end up on the cutting room floor because of numerous stinking legal minefields we deposit before we, we properly get going. I think our producer's going to have to go get his magic pair of scissors uh, to the tail end of this podcast after he's uh, stabbed me in the neck with his magic pair of scissors for going over the hour. So uh, I think it is about time we, we all bid farewell. Thank the listeners for their tolerance for another episode of this absolute madness. If you uh, want to uh, take out a subscription to GP Racing Magazine, visit gpracing.com. If you want to buy a single issue, you can do so digitally very easily via pocket mags um don't forget to also subscribe to autosport plus those of you who are happily listening on the autosport channel and if you uh, want to track down a paper copy you can do so with our distributors online tracker go to seymour.co.uk that's seymour spelled as in Springfield's favourite physician, drseymourbutts.co.uk, and you type in your postcode, it will tell you in the handy flip-down chart where your nearest copy can be located. Uh, one more thing to say, thank you to my guest. Thank you, Mark Gallagher. Thank you very much. It's been great to be here. Speak to you next in month. Absolute pleasure, where we will be discussing the curious case of Ferrari's 2022. Uh, and, and Matt Q, no doubt feeling the winter chill already in the frozen north. Uh, it's... After a lovely mild summer, it has dropped off noticeably. Um, I'm a, if you must know, I'm in a race against time. I'm away this weekend. I'm in a ra- race against time to uh, dry a sufficient pair, uh, number of pants before I go away. So, but I've uh, I've already promised uh, my uh, my girlfriend that we're not having the heating on, and I, I cannot back down from that. It's too much of a loss of face. So, uh, I don't know what I'll do at this rate. Soggy. I'll have a I'll have a wet patch showing through my jeans. I think we're not in the territory of turning the radiators on to dry those pants, are we? Too much of a loss of face. I said, no, 1st of November is when the heating comes on and uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not giving in from that. Mould can be painted over. Yeah, that's reasonable, isn't what? it? What? Well, when, when I come to power, it's heating on 1st of November. No Christmas ads before 1st of December. That's Q's Britain. When I was in short trousers back in the 1980s and I remember being bitterly cold one September evening in my bedroom doing my homework, probably because I was wearing short trousers. That was an inadvisable garb choice. Uh, and, and you know, I asked my mother to switch the heating on and she said, yeah, yeah, nobody has their said for heating on in September. Sorry, that's a terrible East Yorkshire accent. She didn't sound like that at all. But um, with, with that slightly Alan Bennett epper <laughs> enunciation, we bring another episode of Flat Chat with Codders to a close thank you for listening and thanks to our long-suffering producer martin lee we will see you next month mary redeemed a fifty thousand dollar cash prize playing chumba casino this year i was only playing for fun so winning this was a dream come true chumba casino is america's number one social casino experience it's serious fun with over 80 casino style games to choose from you too could win life-changing amounts of cash be like mary log on to chumbacasino.com and give them a world that's chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary void or prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details the voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner 
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. The, is it morning yet, deal. How about now? Or now? Because morning time is McDonald's breakfast time. And that's the best time of all the times. Wake up with a little splash of sweetness. Get any size iced coffee from caramel to hazelnut to French vanilla for just 99 cents until 11 a.m. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.